Hey, everybody. Welcome to You Were Born for This podcast with Father John Ricardo, Mary Guilfoyle. We are a couple of missionaries at Acts 29, and this is the podcast where we talk about anything and everything having to do with transformation in the church. And this week, I'm actually here alone because, as we mentioned on last week's episode, we're going to share the audio in this podcast episode and then the video on our new app of a recording that we did when we were back in Denver at the Archdiocese leading the deacons and their wives on retreat. So just a quick introduction to what it is that's about to play. We firmly believe that the the single way to understand what the Lord has given us in Acts 29 are three what we call essential principles for transformation in the church. And the three principles are simply these. First, we need to reacquire a biblical worldview. We got to get clarity on who's God, why do he make the world, why is it messed up, what's he done about it, how should we respond, all sorts of things related to that. That's where the, the rescue project and things like that fit. Second is what we call it's not enough to be a staff. And that's where the whole great work of just understanding, you know, leadership's a team sport. No, nobody's supposed to lead alone. Like Moses. Moses had 70 wise people, so how many do you and I need, right? Um, Paul didn't have a staff, meaning he, he didn't look at the people he did ministry with as his staff. These were the men and women, brothers and sisters uh, that he did ministry with. And then third is what we call restoring the initiative to God. And what we're about to play is a, a presentation that we gave to the deacons and their wives in Denver on just that. This is really the ultimate payoff, if you will, of our work. So the, the principle is giving permission back to God to lead. In other words, not just praying before we do our work, but praying in order to know what the work is. So that's the principle that we believe is really the, the game changer, not just for parish ministry or diocesan ministry, but actually in family life and married life, in our businesses, in, in our schools, whatever it is, because God wants the transformation of our own lives, of our marriages, of our families, of our parishes, of our schools, of our diocese, more than we do. And what we most need right now is not to get around a table and to brainstorm what's the best answer what we really need to do is to get on our face and to ask the Lord to show us the plan. So this is our way of having heard from the Lord how to discern that plan. So enjoy it. We'll be eager to hear feedback and questions that anybody might have. In the meantime, let's, let's trust in this week as we enter back into ordinary time uh, that God wants all the transformations that we're longing for far more than we do because that's true, do not be afraid. He's with you, and you were born for this. This is from the ending of Matthew. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Really? <laughs> Some doubted? Like they're looking at the resurrected Jesus. They're putting their fingers into his hands. 
and his side. I find this to be a remarkably encouraging passage. <laughs> right? The Lord is standing in front of them, risen from the dead. They've been talking to him, and they're still going, I'm not sure. <laughs> and I, I want to start with that as we, uh, as we go into this last session, simply because um, I, we cannot stress enough uh, what we're going to talk about. You cannot think yourself into faith, and you cannot convince somebody to convert. The, the best summary of faith I've ever heard, the best definition of faith I've ever heard, is, uh, which is a, a summary actually from the catechism, is faith is God's work in me to which I respond. The initiative is always his. It's God's work in me to which I respond. What's the work? The Holy Spirit convinces me that what we've heard proclaimed is true. And the Spirit convinces me that Jesus did this for me. And the Spirit moves me to yield. But that hadn't happened for the apostles yet, even after the resurrection. Right? So... They've, they've been eating and drinking with Jesus, risen from the dead. They've seen extraordinary things. They've heard him talk about what, you got to know, they were talking to him about like, so what was Satan's face like when, when you started to awake? Like that had to have been something. Like, I'm very curious. I ask lots of questions. Can you imagine the conversations that they had with Jesus in those days between the resurrection and the ascension? Like, I want to know everything. They are certainly asking him questions. And yet, despite all of that, it wasn't enough. The, the only thing that changed them, and the only thing that will change me, and the only thing that will change those that we're trying to reach, is the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, nothing happens. Nothing happens. And we get nervous with that. Because I can't control the Holy Spirit. Mary and I were at a, a conference a couple years ago with some other folks uh, from the parish that we were working with, and it was an ecumenical event, and there was about 8,000 people in this arena, and it was the last night, and the gentleman who was given the, the so like right now, the, the closing talk, right? And he comes out in front of 8,000 people, and he stands at the front of the stage, and for three, four minutes, he just did this. And everybody there was feeling like you are now. <laughs> like, doesn't he know what he's doing? Did he, did he not come up with a talk? <laughs> you know, like, we don't like silence. And what he was doing was he was praying. And people would start to, they would get agitated, so they'd start to say something, and he'd just go, shh. Let's just wait. And what he was praying was, Holy Spirit, show me what's happening right now. And I turned to Mary and this other woman, also named Mary, who's no longer walking with us in this earth. 
And I said, we talk in the church all the times about how we want a new Pentecost. We don't want a new Pentecost. We would never be comfortable doing that. We're really good at, at standing here with a book and the words to say. What's the script? But to actually be de- totally dependent on what the Spirit's doing, we're not very good at that. And if we're really going to see transformation in the church and in our own lives, we have to learn again how to do that. So we, we mentioned on Friday night that, that we're convinced. We don't, we don't believe this. We actually think this. We think there's these three principles for transformation. The first is what we did yesterday, reacquiring a biblical worldview, or at least began to touch on. It's what the Rescue Project's all about. The second we'll leave to the side for now. It's actually one of the things that we're doing with this Institute for Apostolic Leadership that we're uh, doing here in the Archdiocese of Denver, and we'll bring back to Detroit and open it up to people from around the country, but just trying to press into the work of becoming more than a staff, becoming a family, really going on mission together as a family. But the third principle is how to prayerfully discern God's plan. No one's ever been here before. We all grew up in Christendom, and we've left it. We're now in this very different era, which means the tactics and the strategies that we used actually not long ago don't work anymore. And that's okay. They were good for that time. But we're in a different time now, and we need to ask the Lord, Lord, what do you want us to do now? And we have to approach him. That's why that prayer in Hacksaw is so powerful. What is it you want of me? I don't understand. I can't hear you. And until I hear you screaming, I don't know what to do. And oftentimes what we see going on in the church is, um, is an effort to either replicate best practices or to do like brainstorming sessions. Best practices are very beneficial to be sure, but they're not the answer. Just because something worked at your parish doesn't mean it's going to work at mine. But because God has the plan, we don't have to worry We just have to ask him to show it to us. So Albert was talking about some of the resources that we offer. And that one little thing has an odd name, thoughts from the trailer. Like we don't have a little portable trailer where we do our work out of. But actually the little portable trailer is where that comes from. So when Mary and I were at the parish, we were doing a a pretty sizable renovation. And one day out of nowhere shows up this little portable trailer. And every day I would watch these two guys walk into the trailer They'd spend, I don't know, half hour in there. They'd walk out, put their hard hats on, and they'd walk over to the construction zone. And then at lunch, they'd walk back to the trailer. They'd spend about a half hour in there, and then they'd walk back to the construction zone. And then at night, they'd walk back to the trailer. And they did this day after day, week after week. What's in the trailer? Blueprints. (laughs) That's become the image for us for ministry. The trailer is the chapel. What we build in our conference rooms and all our strategy sessions and all that, that's the construction zone. We actually have a sign above our chapel that says, the trailer. And we have a sign above one of our main conference rooms that says, the construction zone. And we just go back and forth periodically throughout the day between one and the other. And, and for us, if you can think about, th- think biblically of 
Exodus 35, 6, 7, 8, 9, when God is instructing Moses how to build the tabernacle. And he says to Moses on a number of occasions, build it according to the pattern I will show you. So Moses has to, his task isn't to like find the smart people and go, hey, let's, let's sit down and have a brainstorming session about what you think we should build. His task is to find people that he trusts who can hear the Lord, who can, he, he can be a family with, go before the Lord, get on their faces, ask the Lord, show us the plan, come out of that experience, and then argue. Because the plan never falls from the sky. The way we discern is we pose very specific questions to the Lord. We go before him in the Eucharist for a half hour, an hour. We come out and we argue. And the spirit begins to surface things. And it saves a lot of time. And we need to learn how to do that again. Because as I mentioned on Friday night, I think, unfortunately, Usually because parish life and diocesan life is so busy, prayer has become an agenda item as opposed to setting the agenda. So we want to break open how to do this. So this is all on how we've been taught by the Lord to prayerfully discern God's plan. I want to, I'm going to share a lot of things on these slides right now. It's not to crush you with text. Uh, it's because some of these things are so helpful and so I just, because we're going to share all the slides with you anyway, I might just invite you to just enter into this and let the Holy Spirit just move in the, whatever way he wants to, to do that. So let's just ask him to come right now. So Father, we just ask that you'd send your spirit into this room to just help us to see whatever it is that you want us to latch on to. Give us the confidence that we need to know that you have a plan for this time. And that more than we want to know it, you desire to show it to us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So just think for a second to yourself, especially those of you who, who do full-time parish ministry, but even if you don't do full-time parish ministry, we're always at some events in the parish where prayer is taking place. What's prayer look like if you're part of a staff? How many of us are, are doing full-time parish ministry where there's a, a regular habit of a, of a leadership team getting together, spending at least a half an hour a week together in front of the Blessed Sacrament? Great. Four of us, anyway. I'd encourage us to, to just let the Lord talk however he wants to talk to us right now with what we can bring back into the different contexts that we minister in uh, or that are part of our family life. Because this doesn't just apply to ministry in terms of parish life. This applies to the primary ministry, which is family life, and then to everything else afterwards. So a, a key question to ask is, does God really speak? Because tragically, the most common objection we get when we do this with priests and with bishops, the most common question we get is, how do you know that's God? And I want to go, you got to be kidding me. Like, you know, to use Jesus's words, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? 
Like you're supposed to be teaching people how to pray and to discern and you don't know how to discern God's voice. But I don't, think, I'm def- I don't say that to blame anybody. It's because I don't think many of us were taught other than how to discern vocational issues, how to discern God's speaking. And we need desperately to ask him like, Lord, what's the plan? What's the plan for the parish? What's the plan for our marriage right now? What's the plan for our family? What's the plan for this ministry that I'm leading? What's the plan? I really don't care what your great idea is and you shouldn't care what mine is. We want his. That's what we should want. So let me share with you a a couple of somewhat lengthy quotes. Anybody know Wilfred Stinnison? He's a... There's, there's a little book that came out that got very popular a couple of years ago called Into Your Hands, Father. Anybody read that? Oh, write it down, like now. <laughs> Into Your Hands, Father. It's a, um, it's a commentary on the prayer of abandonment from Charles de Foucauld. Stinnison's a Carmelite. He's passed away now. Just underscore that for a moment. He's a Carmelite. Okay? A cloistered Carmelite. This is not one of those guys with a tambourine and a guitar going, you know, he's a Carmelite, okay? Listen to what he says, I, and I use him very intentionally because we hear words like what he's going to say right now, and we're going to feel, some of us, what he's describing. If we have contact with people in the charismatic movement, we notice they're often convinced they are, or at least can be, under the guidance of the Spirit. Before they do anything, they seek guidance, They act from inspirations and impulses, which they regard as coming from the Holy Spirit. Outsiders usually look on this with a grain of suspicion. Do these charismatics really believe they have a private pipeline to heaven? Nevertheless, this cloistered Carmelite goes on to say, both the New Testament and the church's spiritual tradition show clearly that God leads man not only by general norms and commandments, but also by personal inspirations. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Why would the counselor be with us if not to help and guide us? And I think some of us, not anybody here, of course, but some of us go, hmm, don't know that I've ever thought about that. But the Lord has a plan, and he wants to make it known. He goes on, naturally, one is open to, here to illusion, to self-deception. One can easily cling to a false freedom and think it's from the Spirit. That is a risk that goes with life. Albert and I would, would, I don't want to speak for you, but we could speak very candidly. He had a lot of experience in a charismatic renewal. I had a lot of experience in a charismatic renewal. I would call myself something like a cloistered charismatic right now or a contemplative charismatic. Um, I am very, so I grew up with a lot of things. I'm very leery of it. And I'm very leery of it because I saw it go haywire. But the downside of that is because I saw it go haywire, you go, you know what? It's too risky I'm not going to do anything with that ever again. And that's not the answer. And unfortunately, labels don't help. Because we say words or expressions and people immediately think, oh, I know what you're talking about. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. 
What's clear from the Holy or from the New Testament and from Jesus's words and from what we see, not just in something like Matthew 28, but all throughout the New Testament, is if the Spirit doesn't come and get active in our lives, we're just mouthing words. So this is a risk that goes with life. It cannot be the right solution to avoid every risk by truncating the Christian life and depriving it of one of its most important elements. Mysticism has always been dangerous. And there have always been people who thought they had great mystical graces when in reality they were having hallucinations. But what's Christianity without mysticism? The solution is not to extinguish the spirit. The solution is to test the spirit. And, as Paul goes on to say, to hang on to what's good. The spirit's inspirations, this is still Stinison, are of two different kinds. We can distinguish between extraordinary and ordinary inspirations. Extraordinary inspirations would be like St. Paul on his way to kill Christians. Boom, struck by lightning. Here's Jesus. That's extraordinary. That hasn't happened to most of us, and it probably won't. Ordinary inspirations, there's no clearly articulated message from heaven. There are neither words nor visions, but there's an inner attraction to that which the Spirit wants us to do. In other words, he begins to move within us, showing us where to go. And we'll talk about this a little bit more specifically in a moment. Finally, he says, Yes, here we see that the Spirit really wills through man's will. The attraction can be strong and almost irresistible, but more often it's quiet and discreet. So discreet that only the one who is accustomed to listening perceives it. That's one of the reasons why it's so important to simply turn off the noise. Only the silent hear. And there's way too much noise in my life and in most of our lives. And God is not a vending machine where we go, okay, I got 10 minutes now. Give me the answer. We have, to, we have to learn how to live with a contemplative mindset in the middle of chaos where, we're, we, where it becomes habitual for us to say, Holy Spirit, show me what you're doing right now. Whether we're having a counseling session with someone, whether we're leading a ministry, whether we're talking to a family member at Thanksgiving, I'm listening to you and I'm listening to the spirit all at the same time. What's going on here? What's being said? What's not being said? The finer and more sensitive the antenna we have, the easier it is to hear the spirit's soft murmuring. That's a cloistered Carmelite. We often describe this with with bishops and uh, their leadership teams. And we've done this with Archbishop Aquila here. And we've done it with a lot of other bishops and priests. We call it simply restoring the initiative to God. Let God lead. Untie his hands. Don't ask him to bless our plans. Ask him to show us his plans. Our plans apparently aren't working very well. His plans save the universe. Some of us might know Cardinal Consul Mesa. Consul Mesa is the papal preacher. So he's the Pope's preacher for Pope Francis. He was for Pope Benedict. He was for Pope John Paul II. He's a patristic scholar. 
And right after the McCarrick scandal uh, here in the United States, Pope Francis asked him to come and to speak to all the bishops at Mundelein. So 2019? 2018, yeah. So he gave a, a number of addresses, but one of the most powerful ones for us that we go back to over and over again is one where he was just speaking to them about the primacy of prayer. And this is what he said. He says, one of the critical areas we need to rethink is the relationship between prayer and action. Remember that marine acronym, in order to. The apostles and saints prayed in order to know what to do. Not merely before doing something. I think it's entirely the other way around for most of the church. We simply pray, many, before we do something, as opposed to trustingly ask him, what is it you're asking us to do? And we need to learn how to do that. I need to learn how to do that. He goes on to say, if we truly believe that God guides the church with his spirit and answers when we call, we ought to take the prayers preceding conferences and meetings much more seriously. There's no rush to get down to business. But of course, in parish life, there is, which means something has to change. We don't get down to business unless some answer has been received by way of the scriptures and inspiration of prophetic word. When discussion gets bogged down, no progress is being made. Our faith emboldens us to say, friends, let's take a short break and not like go get a cup of coffee, although that might be helpful too. Friends, let's take a short break. Let's go into the chapel and see what light the Lord is willing to throw on our problem. Rick can tell you that's what they do all the time when they're doing offsites with the archbishop and his leadership team. It's what we do when we're working with pastors and their teams and other bishops around the country. To get into the habit of going, we're at an impasse right now. How about we take a time out and not go take a breather. Let's take a time out. Let's go to the chapel. Let's say, Lord, we're stuck. Show us what to do. Come out and argue. And the premise of the argument is, what did you hear? What did you hear? Which means, what did he say? The more time we devote to praying over a problem, the less time will be needed to resolve it. We need to restore the power to God. The power of deciding, the initiative, the freedom to intervene at whatever moment in the life of his church. And then this image is just so powerful to me. The church is not a rowboat driven forward by the strength and the skill of the arms of those who are in her. Those of us who work in parish ministry, more often than not, are simply exhausted. And many of our brothers who are serving as priests and many of our bishops are exhausted. And they're exhausted because they're rowing. But the church is not a rowboat. The church is a sailboat. Driven by the wind, which blows it along from above. And the exhortation from the Holy Spirit, we would suggest is, ladies and gentlemen, just like hoist the sail. <laughs> and let me work which isn't to be careless. It's not to say, we don't know what we're doing. 
It's not to say we don't have a clue. It's just to say we're going to walk in faith, trusting that the Lord's going to show the plan. And so we build a plan based on what he shows us. And then we're open to him correcting it at any moment. So I've heard the archbishop say in in a lot of different settings, like we don't have a plan. It's like, that's not true. You have a plan. You have a plan that the Lord showed you, but, but you're also open to him course correcting whenever he wants, which is very unusual. Because some of us love, love to plan. Some of us, you know, Albert had a 20-year plan? 15-year plan, yeah. See, I, I, I just want to rip those up. <laughs> uh, I love being, I, I'm not impulsive, at least I hope I'm not. But I, I, I just temperamentally like very okay with the Lord going, appreciate what you just did there, but no, we're going to do something else. And, and, and I would suggest, that might be my temperament, but we all need to get familiar and accustomed and okay with that. To just set him say, Lord, you lead. Which isn't to say, I'm going to do nothing. It's you lead. And I'll walk beside you. Actually behind you. Because sometimes what happens is, we're so far out in front, we're just going like, you're back there, right, Lord? Like, did you? Where'd you go, actually? I don't see you. So we get so far ahead of God so many times when we just need to make sure that we're, we're, we're keeping in step with him. So how do you do that? That's the principle. The principle is how to prayerfully, is that we need to prayerfully discern the plan, confident that God has one for every parish in the Archdiocese of Denver. There's a plan for the transformation of every parish in the Archdiocese of Denver, by which I don't mean that every parish needs to be transformed. That's not my point. But God has a plan for everything. We just have to ask him to show it to us. This is a method. So that's the principle. This is a method, which we have found to be intensely helpful. So one of the ways that's, that's um, practical or a practical way to do this is um, you could do this as a husband and a wife, you could do this as a, a leadership team for a ministry. You could do this as a parish leadership team. The archbishop does this with his team. You're going to be very specific in the questions you're going to ask the Holy Spirit. And there's three questions. And we're trying to get at, ultimately, what's the strategy? What are you asking us to do? And so the first way to do this is what we call diagnostic prayer. And it's having the mindset of a physician. And we're going to take whoever those people are that we know can hear the Lord, who can, who can um, authentically push us and we can push them. Like, nobody's, like nobody wants credit. We just want the best idea. We want to hear what God's got. So we know we got those people. We're going to go into the chapel and we're going to ask the Lord this question. With regards to the parish, with regards to a particular ministry, with regards to our marriage, with regards to one of our children. And the question is going to go something like, what's the biggest wound here? What are we dealing with? Or where are we most sick? And then what you're going to do is we're going to ask the Lord, show us something like a spiritual MRI of this problem. Because I don't know unless he shows it to me. 
And I'm not interested in the, in the solution yet. I just want the diagnosis. It's like the patient who goes to the doctor who has no idea what's wrong. I just don't feel good. And the doctor doesn't go, well, let's try Vicodin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? The doctor's going to examine me. Well, where do you hurt? Everywhere. Does it hurt here? No. So it's not everywhere. Okay, so where does it hurt, right? So it's by diagnosing me that he's going to be able to finally come up with a strategy, right? That's all we're doing here. So we're going to go spend like a half hour in prayer. And then we're going to come out of the prayer. And we're literally going to get around a table. And we're going to go, what'd you hear? What'd you hear? What'd you hear? What'd you hear? And then the Spirit's going to talk. And then we're going to take a second question to the Lord. And now you're going to ask for something like, Lord, I want to see what hell's strategy is. Because if you ever served in the military, you know the expression, the enemy gets a vote. You can have the best plan in the world, the enemy gets a vote. And you and I have an enemy, and he gets a vote. He doesn't win, but he gets a vote, and he has a strategy. And so there's this great passage in the Old Testament, it's in uh, 2 Kings 6, where... Um, Syria and Israel are at war with each other. And the king of Syria is constantly trying to destroy Israel. And every time he tries to make a move, Israel anticipates it and escapes. And this goes on for a little while. And finally, the king calls his generals in, sits them down and goes, okay, which one of you guys is the traitor? Like someone's telling them what we're doing. Where's the mole? And one of the generals says, oh, there's no mole, my Lord. There's a prophet in Israel. And he hears your thoughts and he warns them what to do. That's really encouraging news, people. <laughs> so what we're doing when we pray here now, now we're going to go back into prayer with those people. And we're going to ask the question of something like, Lord, because I'm visual, I, I pray visually. Some of you might need text or something. The visual for me is I want to see like mission control in hell. I want to know what's on the screen. We did this with the priest last year when we came and did the retreat with regards to the question of unity. If you were hell, what would your strategy be to keep the transformation of the priesthood in the Archdiocese of Denver from becoming all that it could be? And off the top of my head, I'd go, I don't know, envy, jealousy, division, gossip, pettiness. And that's off the top of my head. You can imagine what hell's doing. And so you're asking, Lord, show us what's on the screen. For your parish, a ministry, your marriage, your son or daughter. Then you come out of prayer and you ask, what'd you hear? What'd you hear? What'd you hear? Here's what I heard. And then it's only based on those two things that you now start worrying about solutions. And this is the third way to pray. So we call this the mindset of a general. So based, Lord, on what you've revealed in prayer to us that we've mutually discerned are the biggest wounds or the biggest wound. And based on what in prayer you've revealed and we've discerned is the enemy's strategy. Where are you asking us to attack? Where are you asking us to spend our resources? Does that make sense? 
It's extraordinary how this works. Now, this is not a, this is not magic. You know, I'm always, we, we talk often about the, there's a passage in Jeremiah where the, the people come to Jeremiah and say, go consult the Lord for us about this question. And so he does. And then the next verse is 10 days later, Jeremiah came back. Okay, so this is not a slot machine. But God wants this more than we do. He wants transformation more than we do. He wants renewal more than we do. He wants all men to be saved more than we do. He wants everybody rescued more than we do. He wants your children back more than we do. And so if we give him time, he will talk. Uh, Mary and Albert and I were working with a bishop who I've known for 30 years who uh, is just a John Paul II bishop. He's a young man. He's a great guy. He's very much a planner. And the first time we shared this with him, we did it with him and his leadership team. Then we went off to pray and he came back and he had like a notebook with a verbatim in it. And he was crying and he looked at us. He says, I've never done anything like this and I can't believe how effective this is. And now every time we go back to his diocese to work, he's like, you're going to teach them how to do that, right? Because I need them to ask the Lord what the plan is. Because I'm tired of our plans. They're not bearing fruit. We need his plan. Okay? So those are the three ways to pray. Diagnostic prayer, mindset of a physician. Mission control prayer, mindset of the enemy. And strategic prayer, the mindset of a general. This is the most common question in, in parish life is usually, especially after Mary gets it all the time with something like the rescue project, or we used to get it with Alpha, is what do you do next? And if we can learn how to pray like this, we'll never call anybody and ask that question again. Because we won't need to ask them. We'll ask him. And we know that he will speak. And because of all, all of our contexts are so remarkably different, all the parishes are remarkably different, the makeups are so different, the plan for each one's different. We just have to enter into it with the confidence that the Lord will speak. Okay? I'm going to share a couple of things with you. Rather than capture anything, I just invite us to enter into this. This is uh, the, the way we feel like the Lord just wants us to, to close. This is from a, uh, a document, a book that's about to come out. It's not published yet, but it's going to come out soon. And it's, it's, it's a discussion on this little excerpt from Ephesians 6, where Paul, on a number of occasions, after he's talking about clothing ourselves with armor, he leaves us with a rather odd final word, which is stand, right? So put on the, the helmet of salvation, the, take up the shield of faith, the belt, breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes of the gospel. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And if having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. It's like stand, stand, stand. What's it mean to stand? So let's let this be the last word we have. In the face of the ravages of a fallen world, it means that Christians will cultivate a vision of faith, a calm and zealous determination to obey God, to live for him, and to cooperate with his often mysterious strategies as he builds his kingdom. 
when we look out on the wide world, the political life of our own country, the geopolitical situation, complexities of economics, digital technology, environmental questions, we will not make the mistake of forgetting the primacy of invisible realities and fall into thinking that everything hangs on such matters. We will not be deceived into the delusion that politics is the hope of the future or that environmental awareness will save us or that good economic practices are the key to happiness. When our gaze moves to the church, we will refuse to succumb to anxiety about the ultimate fortunes of the church or settle into anger over the sins of fellow Christians, neither of which attitude will help us cooperate with Christ. We will remember that Jesus was grieved over the betrayal of Judas, but he was neither surprised nor angry. When we face modern Judases within the church, or we encounter the Judas that dwells within our own hearts, we will respond like Christ, not with anger, not with anxiety or discouragement, but impelled by divine charity with calm zeal ready to follow the way of Christ, even to crucifixion. When we face the challenges of living in an increasingly non-Christian culture, we will remember that we have been born into precisely this age by the thoughtful providence of God, and that he has special plans to work in and through us. We will remember that there is always grace enough to deal with whatever comes our way, and we will resist all doomsaying and desperate attitudes. We'll do our best to recapture the faith-filled sight of the early Christians, who, though a tiny and entirely insignificant minority, refused to be overwhelmed by the power and immensity of the pagan world around them because they knew that they were at the center of God's saving plan and that much depended on their faithfulness. When our gaze turns to ourselves, we will remember that the really strategic battle is the one we encounter morning by morning in our cooperation with the Holy Spirit as he battles the darkness in our hearts and fans into flame the divine life he has planted in us. We will strive at all times to remember who we are, adopted sons and daughters of the King of Heaven, now living in a hidden and exiled life, battling against our ancient foe, but soon to be revealed as bearers of divine light to the joy and astonishment of all the inhabitants of heaven. This is our time. This is the day the Lord has made. This is the age for which we were chosen. This is a time of God's energetic action as he continues to deal with the world and with each of us in love and mercy. Let us then take hold of the life and the time God has given us with both hands in all their light and shadow and with genuine faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for gathering us. We thank you for these days that we've been together. We thank you for the conversation, for the new friends, for the deepening of old friends, for the reconnection with people we haven't seen in some time. We thank you for the plan that you have for 
our marriages, our families, our children, our parishes, our ministries, the Archdiocese of Denver, the world. Help us to trust you. Help us to leave here with joy and with confidence. Yes, mindful that we're in a battle, but absolutely, unshakably confident that Jesus is Lord and we have nothing to fear. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thanks, everybody.